Good evening, everybody. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And we'll begin with prayer. And let's uh, thank God for our gathering. And let's... Um, uh, Chris? Chris? Uh, next song is on. Um, it's all right. Am I, I'm on the right slide. I mean, the uh, camera's on me? Cool. Thanks. So much for making it sound normal. <laughs> nah. Uh, hello, everybody, again. Uh, there's just some technical difficulties, and uh, we're good. So Luke chapter 7, let's begin with prayers we do. Let's thank God for our time together to uh, hear his word and to be able to discern and know and understand him and what he has for us in this life. There's uh, quite a bit to discern in the spiritual life. Uh, the scripture does not spell out things for us in a procedural step-by-step fashion. The way that God uh, presents his truth demands uh, consistent study and reflection. And, and it, there's no other way to understand it. So, And that's why we, by the Spirit of God, must come to the Word of God with concentration and with humility. So with that in mind, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this privilege and honor of having your word and being able to comprehend and your provision for us and for how you have provided prayer and in this particular subject, Father, how you provided for us to deal with our sins. Uh, we are all sinners and you make that clear that you understand that, we understand that and that daily we have some sin in our lives, hopefully less as we grow. So we thank you, Father, for your forgiveness, for without which we could never confidently and assuredly move forward in your plan. So we ask, Father, that you would guide us through your word that we may understand this very important subject of sin and confession as presented in the Psalms. And may, as our Lord said, and when he gave us his prayer when he told us how to pray to forgive, to say to forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. Uh, we ask, Father, you reveal to us the reason and the meaning and the practical application. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we uh, next uh, we come to uh, prayer in the Psalms and in the next theme that we're going to look at in prayer in the Psalms is guilt. Uh, we've seen several themes in the Psalms. Uh, and, and as a reminder, the Psalms are prayers that are uh, given to us that uh, have been, of course, obviously made up, not made up, sorry, but composed, I should say, is better, of, from people that God has adopted into his very word. Uh, it would not be shocking to us who know something of the Word of God that much, many psalms are written about the confession of guilt or the confession of sin and repentance. Uh, I prefer to call them repentance psalms because they are the, the meat of them uh, is to, to recover from sin, which is what repentance means. Repentance is a very simple and uh, common word. I think too much is made of it, but... Uh, it means to turn around. It means to change your course. And that's when we're in the, in the pursuit of sin or of sin in our hearts or are being overwhelmed by sin, whether it be lust or some kind of desire that is against God, that we need to change courses. We need to stop what we're doing and start doing <clears throat> the right kind of thinking. So, but what we're going to start with is the reality of forgiveness and what, that, what I mean by reality is experience. Uh, what is the experience of forgiveness? And I, I think is, is one of the main 
benefits of forgiveness. Uh, sorry, of confession. That uh, the the work of God in forgiving us through Jesus Christ is what enables us to confess. So when we think of 1 John 1, 9, uh, which <clears throat> is the only passage in the New Testament about the confession of sin. But what it says is very uh, important. It says if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what that is revealing to us is that we confess and can confidently confess because we know we're forgiven. So he is faithful, he is just to forgive us. Now we know we're already forgiven by the blood of Christ. So this forgiveness is an experience of forgiveness like I've brought my sin to God, I've confessed my sin to God, and I'm still here. Right? The wages of sin is death. I haven't died. Uh, I'm still his son, his daughter. Uh, I'm still, I know, you know, the Holy Spirit is within me. Not that I can feel him, but, you know, there's evidence in, in my life of the Spirit. The Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am the children of God. I, I mean, I know in my heart I'm forgiven. I know that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And that is the experience of forgiveness. If I didn't bring my sin to God, I mean that phrase, and I like the imagery of it. The imagery to me is like this spotlight of God's righteousness, and instead of hiding my sin, I'm kind of pushing it into that spotlight and saying, God, here, you know, I know that you know these things, but I want to bring these things to you between me and you because they have become, have come between me and you. These patterns of sin have hindered my spiritual life. These patterns of weakness have hindered my spiritual life. They've hindered my walk. I, I, I'm not walking or haven't been walking with that, that spiritual, mature, manly walk of, or womanly walk of confidence. Uh, but, you know, I have this lingering, these lingering weaknesses that I know are just laying under the surface under a half inch of topsoil is ready to pop their heads up and, and, and run my life uh, <clears throat> and, and away from you. And, and so when we're, when we're confessing these things, as Jesus told us to in his prayer, you know, everything in that prayer, it's, it's not for God, it's for us. Right? And everything in the Lord's prayer, our Father who is in heaven, does God up in heaven say, well, Oh, gee, thanks. You know, that's, that's great to hear that I'm in heaven. You know, it's, I'm glad that you're worshiping me. It's something like, you know, like approbation like man has. And of course it's not true. It's <clears throat> the, the prayers are for us. The words are for us to, you know, and, and enable us to remind us that our Father is in heaven, that he is our Father, and that the reason he is our Father is because of the death of his Son. And there, therein lies the sacrifice and that his kingdom is coming, and that his will must be done, and I'm a member of his kingdom. All of these things are reminders for me. And give us today our daily bread as a reminder to me that I will have all that I need, and whatever God provides for me, not just bread, but everything, will be exactly what he wants for me. And there will be many good things in that. Just like good bread is good. You know? And then conf- uh, forgive us our sins. We're confessing there, and Jesus puts it right in his prayer, right? So we've been confused. I have been confused about that in the past. Why am I saying forgive us our sins when we're already forgiven? And it's because we're confessing them. It's We're saying to God every day that we have sinned. There's sin in my life that I haven't even known. You know, Things that have come and gone so quickly that I, I haven't seen them. Times that I've been bitter and cranky and complaining or lustful that just kind of came and went and... You know, do I remember it? Um, and I don't. How many of those are there? How many things that I should have done that I didn't do? How many opportunities passed me by that I was either to witness or to speak your gospel or to, to do a kindness towards someone or to encourage someone, but I ignored it and I don't even know I did it. I'm a sinner. But I confess that sin. Forgive me. And I know I'm forgiven. And see, so every day I'm brought into the arena of forgiveness. And these sins that are in my life are put in the spotlight of God's righteousness and they are dealt with by the cross of Christ. 
Now, what I, I turn therefore into Luke 7 of a woman who wore the appearance of sin. The Pharisee describes her, and we know this, this is a woman who went into the Pharisee's house where Jesus was dining, and she wept on his feet and dried his feet with her hair and anointed his feet with her perfume. And the Pharisee says, well, you know, to himself, he says, if, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this is. How does a Pharisee know what kind of woman this is, that she's a sinner? There's a lot of theories to that, but we can just say that I don't think he knows her personally. Uh, it's that she has the appearance, likely a prostitute. And a prostitute at that time would have had a certain manner, a certain dress, a certain way, uh, you know, just like they knew that Jesus and his, his cohort were from Galilee because of the way they dressed and the way they spoke. People in certain places in society have a certain way about them, and this woman has that way. And that way, unless she's amongst her own, amongst other prostitutes and likely tax collectors that hung out with them, <clears throat> then she feels that at least she blends in, but out in public, she does not. In the public of Israel, she does not blend in. And certainly in a Pharisee's house, she does not blend in. But after she heard that Jesus was there, she had to go in. It would seem that all she wanted to do was to touch him, to bow at his feet, and to just present herself, whatever, my, whatever he may say, whatever may come. She's, uh, to be in a Pharisee's house, in, in that, in the position that she's in or the condition that she's in is, has great shame. And the fact that you know, it's like us being filthy or naked and being in the wrong place and everybody staring at you. This woman would have had Pharisees and uh, whoever else was invited to this dinner, which would have probably been scribes as well or lawyers, uh, very religious, legalistic people would have been glaring at her. It's the last place she wants to be. But she goes in. She goes in because the Lord is there. The woman would only go into such a place if she believed who he was, believed in who he was. In the home of a Pharisee, her shame would have had its sharpest sting and his greatest pressure. So I wondered to myself, why doesn't she just wait until he leaves? <clears throat> kind of wait for him to go out into the street and then come up to him? I don't know. I mean, no one knows the answer to that. It may be that there were many, there, the crowds upon, around Jesus were so big that she couldn't get to him. Or it may be that she was afraid that she'd never have another chance. But what we do know is that she has to go in. She overcomes incredible barriers of shame and guilt and, and takes a risk to go in and see him. Her sins are many and she knows it. And this causes her, when she finally gets in and <clears throat> falls at the Lord's feet, it causes her to weep deeply. So let's look at it, Luke 7:36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now the, the word here, Greek word is hamatalos, which uh, is a very it's a common word for sinner. It doesn't have any particular uh, category of sin attached to it. It means any kind of sin. And so we can leave it there. I say, well, what kind of a sinner is she or what kind of sinner would she have been? Uh, but and, and all evidence points to harlot. So again, verse 37, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair, the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Uh, so the Pharisee, you know, this is, there's many things in this uh, narrative that are inviting. Uh, if he were a prophet, the Pharisee says to himself, you know, this is the prophet of Israel. 
it's, it's uh, many things here that bring out the irony of this situation. But the, <clears throat> the Pharisee, as we'll see here, the Pharisee uh, did not have Jesus' feet washed when he came in, didn't anoint him, didn't kiss him in greeting, all of which tell us that the Pharisee and whoever else was there at this dinner didn't really want Jesus there because they respected him or even treated him as a fellow brother, uh, as a Jew, uh, but uh, had probably some ulterior motive to trap him in something he said or ask him questions and try and corner him. Uh, but So Jesus answered him and said, Simon, in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave him more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Now, I love the fact that uh, Simon is a, is a very learned man, and Jesus gives him a question of the simplest sort that a child can answer. And then in verse 44, and this is key to this, he turned, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Now, he's talking to Simon, but he's looking at her. And this is where we see the experience of forgiveness. That Jesus is not just concerned with um, the forgiveness of her sin, which is going to cost him his life. He's not, and <laughs> amazingly as that sounds, he's not only concerned with that. He is totally concerned also with restoring to her her dignity. To restore to her her standing so that she can uh, live a life that is what he told us. He gave us a life and gave it abundantly. Uh, life I have given you and given you abundantly. And that's what he wants for all of us. Uh, and so what Jesus does here is take time. He doesn't ignore this woman. He doesn't say, you know, you're a harlot. You shouldn't be touching me, which, by the way, she shouldn't if she's... She's unclean and he's clean. She touches him and makes him unclean according to the Mosaic Law. Uh, he doesn't care about that. In fact, in multiple passages in the Gospels, he never cares about that. Touching a leper, uh, the woman who with the hemorrhage is going to, we'll see her tomorrow when she touches the, his garment. Uh, and, and none of, though they would ceremonially make him unclean, there's no way that Jesus could become unclean. And... He is concerned with her restoration, just like he is for us. So, you know, the Bible could just say, look, you're forgiven, and it does. Uh, Judicially, you're forgiven, and it does. We're forgiven of all things, and it does. So if we're forgiven of all things, why is it telling us to confess? Why is confession in 1 John 1, 9, why is confession in the Lord's Prayer? Why is confession in the Old Testament? Though we're not under the law, I get that, but you know why is confession in the Scripture and why is it something that is wise for us to do even though we're judicially forgiven? And that is here. The forgiveness that we experience because we've openly confessed to the Father is restoration of the soul. And, and I don't mean in any judicial way. You know, we've, we've been, I've been taught before that you know, you, kind of like you hold the Holy Spirit on a light switch, and when you confess, you turn them on, and when you sin, you turn them off, and when you confess, you turn them on. And <clears throat> you know, the Scripture doesn't bear that. That's kind of, of a conjecture. I'm not saying that confession is not involved in the filling of the Spirit and a part of it, and I think it is. Uh, but uh, this holding the switch of the Holy Spirit on and off, uh, I, the Scripture doesn't bear it, and I don't, I don't think it makes any sense. Um, you know, I could just basically live any way I want and just confess it and keep turning the Spirit on. And uh, you don't see that in the Scripture. What you see in the Scripture is God wants certain kinds of people, certain types of people. People like he's going to say to this woman, go in peace, meaning that be at peace. He didn't say, well, all right, you're forgiven. Go back to harlotry. And then when you mess up some more, come back again. No, he, he just... He, the Lord wants for us to experience the fruit of forgiveness through confession. Again, if I confess to the Father and I'm still here, 
you know, I've not experienced the wages of the sin of death, uh, the wages of sin, which is death, sorry, and <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm still his son and I, I still have his word in me. I, I could see it in me and I can still do that which he has called me to do, the work and the service and everything that he wants me to do. There's nothing hindering me from doing that. I know I'm forgiven and therefore I experience that. When others accuse me, you know, what about your past, Joe, and you did this, this, and this? You know, I'm, I'm not going to try and defend myself to you. I don't have to. As I, I have confessed. I haven't confessed everything because I haven't seen everything. And maybe there's some, there's some sins, yeah, likely that I've done that I've just forgotten about. But um, I'm not hiding from God. We'll see in Psalm 32 that David hid his sin. And it said it just tore him up. Now why? He's not bringing it out to God. He's just keeping it to himself. And, and again, it has nothing to bear on judicially because whether we confess or we don't, we're forgiven through the blood of Christ. That's the judicial. The judicial is at the cross. The judicial is not with us. We have no bearing on the judicial. That's between the Son and the Father. <laughs> We're in the, the only judicial part we have is showing up in the courtroom as guilty sinners and hearing that we're justified because of the Lord. And uh, so the confession does what? It brings us openly to the Lord, to our God, and helps us, makes us actually deal with the things that we are doing that are hindering our relationship with him. And by doing such, we're being restored. And so the woman here bears it so well. And it bears that principle so well. So, uh, let's see. We're are turning, verse 44. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon. And, and no, you've got to re- realize, it, put the picture in your mind. His eyes are on her eyes. Her eyes are definitely on his eyes. And he's talking to Simon, this great Pharisee, but he's looking at her, which according to the Pharisee, she's on the lowest rung of society. And he says, do you see this woman? (laughs) I I dig that. I just love this so much. Do you see this woman? As he's looking at her, almost you could put in parentheses, I see her. Does Simon see this woman? Not really. Right, And actually, according to the law, it's because this woman is Simon's neighbor. Who is my neighbor, the guy said. Right? We just looked at this a few, a few lessons ago. Uh, the man was robbed and left for dead, beaten and robbed. The, Pharisee came, or the priest came by and said, no, I'm not helping him. The Levite came by, no, I'm not helping him. The Samaritan came by and helped him bandaged him up, brought him to an inn for him to be taken care of. And, and then Jesus said to the man, so who was a neighbor to the person, to the one robbed? And the guy said, obviously the one who helped him. And he said what? Go and do the same. So who's the neighbor? Uh, we all are. We're to treat each other as neighbors. Does the Phari- Now this woman is a Jewish woman. Does the Pharisee see her as a neighbor and follow the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. He does not. So again in verse 44, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. You didn't greet me. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Simon thinks he's forgiven little. Simon is shown by Christ here. That she, this woman that he thinks is so low, that Simon thinks is so low, has worshipped and treated the Lord more properly, far more properly than Simon has. Simon didn't wash Jesus' feet. Simon didn't kiss him. Simon didn't anoint him. 
But this woman did. And while he says this, and she must be so shocked, so incredibly shocked, because he is praising her as being better to him than the Pharisee over here that he won't, he's not even looking at. And she's hearing this. And what is this doing to her? Uh, who knows what she expected to hear from the Lord when she came in. She just had to come in. She had to come in and, bear, and bow at his feet. Uh, to, and it was so stressful and so overwhelming that she's pouring tears all over his feet. Yeah, in a way, she washes them. And, uh, you know, what did she expect to hear? Certainly not this. And yet she hears it. What encouragement this is. And this is encouragement to a sinner. <clears throat> so, and while looking at her, he says again in verse 47, uh, her, sin which are ma- her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And then in verse 48, he says to her, just to make sure that she knows, your sins have been forgiven. Right to her. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And there's only one in Israel who can forgive sins. Jesus is a Jewish man. Uh, he's not in a pagan culture where this wouldn't really uh, matter so much. I think anybody in a pagan culture is going around forgiving people of their sins. Um, it'd just be thought of as a kook. But in Israel, it's blasphemy. And, and for someone in Jesus' stature, you know, at least they recognize him as a rabbi. For him to actually tell somebody that they're forgiven of sins, and they're not sins against Jesus. He's never met this woman. She hasn't sinned against him. Uh, She has sinned against God. And he forgives her for that. So this either makes Jesus God or a lunatic. And uh, he's certainly God. So who is this man? Well, who is this man? He's the God man. And he said to the woman in verse 50, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Can't remain here with me. Although I'm sure she would love to. But go in peace. And the same for us. We come to the Lord in prayer. We confess our sins. The, the response is, you're forgiven. Your faith has delivered you. We wouldn't say saved you because you're already saved. But your faith in the cross and the, for, and, and the fact that Christ paid for all sin has delivered you from the sin. Uh, and what I mean by that is the, the ramifications of it. The... You know, it, this this bringing my sin to God openly allows me to deal with things. It allows me to deal with things openly, not lie to myself about them. That's one of the complications of trying to deal with sin on your own. Is all right. Well, what happens when you do that? Well, here's me and my sin. I, I feel pretty bad about this, or I feel I know obviously I shouldn't have done it. It's against God's will. But then. You know, maybe I start to justify it a little. And, you know, is it really my fault? Uh, Is it really a big deal anyway? I'm forgiven of everything. And you're, or, you know, um, it's my weakness. You know, come on, cut me a break. I'm allowed. And, And this is between you and sin and sin and you. And God's not here. And so it's just so easy to lie to yourself about it. To not deal with it properly and openly. So then when you go here with God, are you going to lie to Him? You can't. You know that. Are you going to... No, you can't. You have to bring it to the light and the light exposes it. As Jesus said in John 3, the evil hates the light. Well, you know, it doesn't want to go. You push it there. You like It's like this resistant thing and you push it into the light and let the light deal with it. And then what do you experience? Forgiveness. Just like this woman did. She experienced forgiveness. So Jesus knows that he must restore her soul just as much as she needs to be forgiven. If he says to her, all right, fine, you're forgiven. I'm going to die for you later. Get out of here. But he doesn't do that. He takes the time to speak to her. He takes the time to look her in the eye. And while he's talking to Simon to say, do you see this woman? <laughs> it's just a, such a great line. The fact that he's staring at her and not looking at Simon and saying to Simon, do you see this woman? Because Simon doesn't. 
but the Lord does. He sees right through her, just like he sees right through us. Jesus knows that he must restore her soul as much as she needs to be forgiven. And the same is true for us. The sins of our past, the guilt of our past, has to stay in the past. I have done so many things wrong that this is this is not an AA meeting. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not a hi Joe. I'm, uh, uh, my name is Joe. I'm a sinner. Hi Joe. Uh, <clears throat> it's they got to stay there. And again, people will judge you for these things, and they're going to ma- try and make you an outcast, just like this woman. Uh, tomorrow we won't have time today, but tomorrow we'll see the. The woman uh, that had the hemorrhage for 12 years, she is also an outcast in Israel. The fact that she hemorrhages makes her unclean according to the Mosaic Law, and therefore she's an outcast. We don't even have to hear that she is. The fact that she hemorrhages, and it's been going on for so long, that she can't go to her synagogue, she can't go go anywhere uh, within the fold of Israel. She's completely isolated, completely castigated, she is completely ostracized. And she touches the hem of, or just the, the end of uh, Jesus' robe or his clothes, and uh, she's healed. And we're going to see the same there. He speaks to her. He stops. He said, who touched me? Because he felt power go out of him. And he doesn't send her away. He stops what he's doing and he looks her in the eye and he talks to her. And so it's the same with her. It's just as beautiful as this. And I find interesting that this woman in Luke 7, her problem is her sinful life. And in Luke 8, which is the woman hemorrhaging, her problem is a physical ailment that is making her unclean. One is a behavior that's making her unclean. One is a... Uh, a genetic thing that's making her unclean or a biological thing that's making her unclean. And Jesus is going to restore them both. He's going to be very concerned, not just with healing them and forgiving them, but also making sure that in their souls they know that with God they're okay. People are going to say, hey, you're still unclean. You're still a prostitute. You can tell them. Or she could. No, I'm not a prostitute anymore. I, you've been a prostitute for years. Of course you are. I, I'm not. I don't believe you. It doesn't matter if you believe me. What matters is that I've been restored, forgiven, and restored. Healed and restored. And people continue to bring up your past. I think it's, a, it's a trick uh, or a scheme of the devil to try and get us into the past and to wallow in our guilt. And this is why we're on this subject in the Psalms. In our prayer life and in our study, we have to deal with that. It's, it's a constant temptation to go back into the past and to relive those terrible failures. We must not. Uh, God says through Paul to reach forward to that which is ahead, to keep pressing on, not looking back. After you put your hand to the plow, right? Don't look back. Keep going. And um, knowing that you're completely forgiven. So, again, one of the great benefits of confession to God is the very real experience of being forgiven. If we keep silent about our sins rather than bringing them into the light of his righteousness, we will not know that experience. If we hide them to ourselves, it's ourselves that are dealing with them. Us and the sin and the sin and us. Now, what are you going to do with it? Now, they, and I, I had this discussion years ago with someone, uh, and I said, well, you know, what do you do with your sin? Uh, and he said, well, you don't have to do anything. You're forgiven. And that's true. And, and I want to talk about this a little bit later. Christianity is about real life, and real life is complicated. Um. And so you have this, you're forgiven of all sin, and yet you're a sinner, and you have to deal with those sins. And what does dealing with them mean or doing something with them mean? And, it, and what, and, and what I, I mean by it is that doing something with them is resolving them in your own soul uh, without guilt 
and also with the wherewithal of conquering. There's going to be patterns of sin in our lives that are, are part of, of very real weaknesses, places that were repeat offenders over and over very much. We repeat offend in certain areas. And we have to overcome those weaknesses. And that's what I mean by dealing with them. I don't mean anything judicial. It's already been dealt with. I mean overcoming. Not letting the sin nature rule us. So we experience being forgiven. Uh, Within our hearts, if we don't deal with sin and experience God's forgiveness, we will build up guilt upon guilt for the past, for stuff that's continuing. The fact that uh, we know that certain patterns of sin are unconquered and lay right under the surface and can pop up and rule us at any time. While we're trying to walk with God and trying to live in the way of holiness that He has called us to, and yet here are these things that are just ready at the ready and very easily can rule us. How do you ever have any sure footing? You know, we again judicially you have the surest footing there can be. You cannot be removed from the foundation that is in Jesus Christ. But I'm talking about our walk, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Um, no longer behave like the unbeliever, right? In Ephesians four. Uh, I think it's verse 16. Ephesians, don't, don't keep, don't no longer behave, but, but put on the new creature, the new man, the new self. Uh, and, and to know that I could be knocked off that path at any time. It just, it's a matter of a whim one way or the other is to not really have any, uh, a strong walk, I guess I could say. So as guilt upon guilt builds in our souls, it will darken us and weigh us down and make us sluggish and unhappy. So as Jesus told us, forgive us our debts. In Matthew, it's debts. Forgive us our debts. In Luke, it's iniquities. The Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts and our iniquities as we forgive the debts of others. So let's look at Psalm 32. So the, the reality of the Bible, it, this is something that has come up for me quite a bit lately. Uh, I take those things when they come to me like that uh, over and over. It's something that is repetitive and I take it from God. That God is uh, he, he's trying to impress something upon my soul. And as a teacher, I, I feel that he wants me to teach it, even if it's not related to the subject. Uh, but actually, in the scripture, everything's related to everything else. But uh, the the reality of the Bible is the reality of life, and life has it is not so cut and dry. Meaning that in the, in our subject, God says you're forgiven of all things, and then you also have confession. If I'm already forgiven, why am I confessing? And there's a lot in Christianity who think that you shouldn't confess at all because you're completely forgiven. Um, and that's their opinion. So what you have to be careful of is taking people's opinion as gospel. Either it's in the scripture or it's not. Man's opinion doesn't matter when it comes to truth. So, you know, there's this complete forgiveness and then there's confession. And so, uh, you know, how do I put them together? And the Bible doesn't go into some long explanation of how to take those two things that are seemingly paradoxical and to, and to make sense of them or to harmonize them, you don't get that. And there's a many things that you don't get that. You don't get this harmonization uh, with a bunch of detail about, you know, uh, for the, the biggest one is that you've been called before the foundation of the world, so that's the Calvinist, and you believe in Christ as your Savior for salvation in time, that's the Arminianist, and how do those go together? Because they're both true. And you can look and look and look. There's no explanation given. The closest explanation is in Romans 9 where Paul says there's no injustice with God. So, you know, I called Esau, I rejected Jacob, and uh, there's no injustice with me. 
And uh, it's not an explanation at all. Not that we would, something that we would want to make sense of them. And so what, what does this do for us? And, and here's the answer that God has given to me. Not just me. I've asked people about this who are very knowledgeable about the scripture. I've asked this very question about this, uh, the things that are not, you know, where the details are not filled in. And um, my conclusion is that God desires us not to be superficial uh, readers of the scripture or superficial learners who can just, you know, learn a procedure or memorize a procedure and just do it. To make sense of the scripture, you have to you have to reread it, you have to restudy it, you have to do it over and over again. You have to pray over and over again in seeking its meaning, and you uh, you have to meditate on it. You really that's what the salahs are in the Psalms. Uh, there are places where you're supposed to stop and meditate on the words. You know, what sense do they make? And what sense do they make to me? If someone else understands the truth of things and they say it to me, but, you know, I don't, I don't really get it right now, I have to learn it on my own or for my own. I don't say on my own because I have a lot of help. I have to get the pastor teacher. I have others in the congregation who can encourage me and help me and answer questions. Uh, but <clears throat> I've got to search it out. And when I search it out, you know, as is promised, I'll find it. You know, God said, search for me with all your heart and you'll find me. And to trust in him with all your heart and you will prosper. Meditate, Psalm 1, right? remember that? Uh, meditate. He who meditates on the law day and night is the one who is blessed, is the one who is the tree planted by the stream. And, and so that, that's why there's conundrums, I guess, if you could call them. And God makes us talk it out. Yeah, and there's a risk to this too, which has borne itself, is that because we have to search it out, and you know, your searching and my searching might be at different stages. Maybe you've been searching longer. Maybe you found the solution quicker than I did, and still your opinion on the matter is a bit different from mine. And what this could cause in us is great division, and it has in the church. <clears throat> and it just, and instead of just trying to understand your position from the scripture, I say, well, I have my position, and and I'm sticking with mine, and I don't like yours, and so I'm going to separate from you. And and should we separate for that? Is that a per, is that a reason for so? It's not. Uh, and so God told us, just like Israel had, love your neighbor as yourself. The same command is in the church, and in fact, more so. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And when Jesus loved the disciples, they didn't understand hardly anything that he was in doing. That he loved them and would continue to love them. Now, they'd catch up, of course. They would come to understand. But he continued to love them. We have to do that. The unity in the body of Christ is based on love, not based on the fact that all of us know the same thing. We're in the pursuit of that, but all of us are going to grow at different stages. Some of us are going to get things that others of us don't before we do. We may get things uh, before you do. And instead of sharing with one another in gentleness and with that, by using the scripture, you know, our back and forth, our debate in kindness and in gentleness and understanding will lead us into greater understanding of the Scripture. Now, there was, uh, in my theology class, uh, there was, uh, the, the current assignment is people teaching, uh, the, the students are teaching, like little 15-minute segments on certain passages. And at first when I heard this, I was like, oh, you know, I don't. I want to hear from the professor. I don't want to hear from other students, you know, that are not trained and whatever. And I, I kind of got a and I, and it was sinful. <laughs> God corrected me of this wrong thinking, and, and the way that I was corrected was by hearing the first few students teach on their passages, and because of their 
unique perspective. And, you know, I learned in every single presentation, I've seen six of them on six different passages, and in every one of them, I've learned something from, you know, uh, I call them kids, they're 20 year olds, who, who have been studying God's Word for a few years. But their perspective was wonderful. In certain areas, I think, well, you know, maybe they, they haven't mastered something. But who am I to say who mastered what or whatever? I, I haven't, could I say I've mastered anything? I've, I've been at it longer, but does that really mean that I could, un, that, does it really mean that someone who has just begun has had insight to a passage that over years I've failed to see? Isn't it true that we return to the same passages and learn something new over and over? Because the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword? Of course. And I, I guess what I'm getting at here is sort of a tangent. Is that our understanding of such things as confession, forgiveness, and our confession and the, in light of the fact that we already have been forgiven of everything can lead us to not different conclusions, but different, maybe different questions. And um, we should understand, knowing that, we, none of us know everything. And that together we can pursue this and come to a, a deeper understanding. So this time around in studying confession, this was the first time that I really saw clearly how confession could be a benefit to me, uh, to us, by experiencing forgiveness from God. Uh, I hadn't really seen it that way before. So, I'm at Psalm 32, verse 1. A Psalm of David, a mascal. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. <clears throat> so, in the first stanza, we have the man whose his transgression is forgiven. Notice he has transgression, he's not sinless. But it's forgiven, his sin is covered. Uh, And notice in the last line of verse 2, the Lord does not impute iniquity, meaning that, and it says explained, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, And that means here, so he's a transgressor in verse 1. So the imputing of iniquity is not related to the fact that he's a sinner. It's related to the fact that he has if he were imputed, it would be that he's deceitful. And so what would we be deceitful about? Well, you know, I think of First John, you know, right around both First uh, John 1.9 is First John 1.8 and First John 1.10, which says that we, we claim that we don't sin or we claim that we weren't born in sin. Um, that is definitely a form of deceit because in those passages... Uh, God calls us a liar if we say that. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar. But it's it's also that, uh, you know, I self-justify it. I blame others. I uh, do whatever I do to try and, uh, you know, not rather than bringing it to God and taking full accountability of it to myself. This is mine. Yeah, sure, attempted by other people, maybe pushed a little by other people, uh, by its pressure from others or whatever, but it's on me. What I have done that is a sin is mine. See, that's no deceit. And so this is contrasted with verse 3. When David said, when I kept silent about my sin, and he did, after he sinned with Bathsheba, he did not go to do what he was supposed to do. David immediately should have gone to the tabernacle, and brought the, the temple hadn't been built yet, so there was a tent uh, on Zion that David had built. It would have been, I would assume, exactly as the tabernacle was, and the Ark of the Covenant was there, and the priest was ministering there, the high priest is ministering there, and <clears throat> David should have gone there the very next day with a sacrifice and confessed it by the Mosaic Law. But he didn't. Verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Salah. And Salah means we should pause. When David says pause, pause. Uh, pause to do what? To, well, to look back at the previous lines. 
no deceit in his mouth, uh, in whose spirit there is no deceit, uh, which is what should be in verse 2, but in David there was. He kept silent about his sin. David kept the sin between him and himself. And then, therefore, trying to deal with, in this case, uh, not some passing, you know, bit of bitterness or something or uh, quick anger or whatever, but adultery. Uh, this is something that needs to be dealt with. And I, I wouldn't say that, well, you know, so we should conclude that the, the sins that are of a great magnitude are the ones that we should deal with with God. There's, there's nothing said about that, so why should we do that? If we're willing to bring to God into his righteous light the, the so-called big things that we do, why not the little things? And, and again, not to be uh, morbid you know, watching ourselves for every little thing we do because then that's not freedom. As go forward with vigor and when you see the sin, confess it. Deal with it. Don't let it progress on to other sins. Don't hide it away or blame others and, and, and so try to deal with it on your own. Bring it immediately to the Lord and have it done with. So notice the the, the uh, results of David being silent about his sin. He said, when I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Salah. So what's the result of being silent about our sin? Yeah, my mind is very curious as to truly unravel what are the mechanics in the brain and I mean, this is how my, my mind works. I want to figure it all out. What is the mechanics of the brain when I keep silent about my sin? Knowing that, judicially, I'm completely forgiven. So what is it that causes, notice what it caused in him. It's, it's real with him. It's real with anybody. His body wasted away. He groaned all day long. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him, meaning the, the consequences of sin or discipline. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. In other words, just drained of all energy. And how, how does that, you know, and that's a psychological thing. Well, it's actually physical too because his body is wasted away. So there's this, this result of not confessing. There's this result that, that bears on him. And then there's this solution, as we see in the very next stanza, of when he does confess it, all of a sudden, everything's right. Now, it doesn't make David sinless. He's guilty of it all that he's done. But he's better. Now, we have to say that because of the, the, the what David did, the magnitude of what he did. This isn't the first sin that David ever committed, obviously. But this, this sin with Bathsheba and Uriah changed him forever. It changed his whole life. And he never fully recovered back to the man he was before. However, he dealt with the man he became in grace in a marvelous way. And God blessed him in certain ways, but he, which are also marvelous. But he couldn't really get back to what he was. You know, the, the ramifications of this, the result of this, was going to stay with him forever. But he dealt with it. He dealt with it in, in, in the grace of God. So this difference is getting back to this time in his life. Between hiding our sin, keeping it between us, me and the sin, the sin in me, and not bringing it out into the light of forgiveness in the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a vast difference. Um, by tucking it away, and again, we don't see all of them, but the ones that we do see, tucking them away is almost like a self-justification, hiding it, not let's just forget about it, shoving it into my subconscious, I guess. I don't know, I, as I started out saying in this thought, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm rambling. Uh, there's a reason for that, but I won't tell you now. Uh, that, uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I want to figure out the psychology of that. 
The fact that I don't think I have a grasp on that doesn't matter. What matters is, is that according to this psalm and others, and also in, in the, the New Testament and us dealing with the things that are wrong with us in the light of God, knowing that we're completely forgiven so we can deal, deal with it, there's a huge difference in the quality of my spiritual life when I deal with my sin openly before God in just admitting, confessing, acknowledging, then hiding it. So he says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Salah. Does David question his forgiveness? Not at all. There's no question in his mind, you forgave me. Did he forgive? Does the Lord forgive because he confessed that David knows better? Because you know the animal sacrifice has to be brought. And what does that mean? Uh, and David would know because um, if the animal sacrifice took away the sins, the sins of Israel, then you just after the first day of atonement, where they sacrifice for the whole nation, there need not be another sacrifice. And that's exactly the argument that is made in the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10. That if the sacrifice actually took away sin, there would be no longer a need for sacrifice. But as the writer of Hebrews points out, year after year after year after year, they had to keep sacrificing these animals because they didn't take away sin. So <clears throat> David understands that it's not the blood of bulls that takes away sins. But something was coming. And he knew it because he's promised this, that his son would sit on the throne of Israel forever. He knows that someone is coming, his son, in the future to take away the sins of the world. So is confession contingent upon that? Absolutely not. And we'll prove that again. You, I know that you know that, but it's, it's important when we do this study that it is proven again. By, just by looking at the scriptures in the New Testament, that our sins and our iniquities are remembered no more by God, that he has uh, forgiven all of our transgressions in Colossians 2. <clears throat> so the assurance, did I put that there? Uh-oh, pardon me. Here you go. There it is, sorry. The assurance of forgiveness is found in both testaments and the experience of it restores the soul. So <clears throat> David understands that he's forgiven. Uh, by confession, he experiences the forgiveness. It's no longer just, it's not like a judicial, just a judicial thing in the future. I see here David say, you forgave my sin. It's an experience of it. Now I can go on. And he does. Look at verse 6. David's poetry is made this way. He shows a progression of things, even though that progression may take a year or something. But when he puts the poetry together, he's leading us to see uh, the truth of it all. Now that he's forgiven, or knows he's forgiven, verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters... They will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Salah. See now the restoration. The experience of forgiveness gives David this vigor. It's a renewed. It's restore, restoration. Right? As we saw in, in Psalm 19, it says that the law of the Lord restores the soul. Here, forgiveness restores the soul, which is part of the law. God would forgive. Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. For us, that time is always. Pray. Now, let all who are godly. Why are we godly? Well, not because we're sinless. Uh, you know, this psalm shows that. Why is he godly now? Because he's been restored. Godly, meaning devoted. That's what the word godly means. It means devoted to God. Before he was devoted to hiding his sin. Now his sin is out in the open, forgiven of God. He's, forg he's experienced the forgiveness of God. Now he's devoted to God with nothing in his way. 
There's no sour thought. There's no bitterness. There's no uh, guilt. Uh, all of that because of the sin. It's all gone now. right? He brought the sin to God and all was obliterated by the blood of Christ. It's in the past. And now, what he has is the ability to pray as one is devoted to God. He says the flood of great waters won't touch him. Anything that comes against me now... You know, prior to that, he's moaning all day long and hand heavy upon me. His uh, energy is drained in verse 4. And now he can say, the flood of great waters won't even reach me. Right? There's strength now because he's restored. And then you are my hiding place. So this strength goes to this meekness, like uh, the chick under the pinions of the mother bird. You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Salah. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that you and you alone are the one who forgives. And that through Jesus Christ, our Lord, all of us are forgiven who have believed upon him. May we continue, Father, to see the fruit of forgiveness and to see uh, the reality of it. For each of us to come to understand it. I think there are still some things that are um, not as clear to us or even to me and if they are to others. May we encourage one another. If we know, let's speak about it. If we see, let's share it with one another and do so with encouragement that the body of Christ may all grow together in knowledge and in wisdom of you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Why you had to hurt?